people are always saying about the Ripley books, well, there's a kind of hint that Ripley has homoerotic feelings for some of the other characters. I say, a hint? It's like... It's there from the very beginning. <laughs> it's, it's like Pip has great expectations. Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good. And what do we have on tap today for the good folks, Laura? What's going on right now? What's going on right now is I have been looking forward to talking about this movie so much. This was one of the more or most hotly anticipated movies on our 90s list for me. It is The Talented Mr. Ripley, uh, based on the novel of the same name by Patricia Highsmith, posthumous friend of the podcast. <laughs> Patricia Highsmith. <laughs> and we had the most delicious, delightful, delovely opportunity to talk about it with one of my favorite people in the Stanford universe, other than you, Adrian, who is Terry Castle. Tell us, please, about the iconic Terry Castle. So Terry Castle is a professor of English at Stanford and a specialist, among other things, for Patricia Highsmith. You may be familiar with her book, The Apparitional Lesbian, Female Homosexuality and Modern Culture, which is a total stone-cold classic of, of the genre. There is also the literature of lesbianism, a true doorstopper of a anthology, absolutely wonderful, and a really uh, beautiful collection of essays called The Professor and Other Writings from uh, 2010. Mm -hmm. Terry has been writing about Patricia Highsmith for a long time. She uh, did an edition of The Price of Salt and most recently wrote a characteristically sharp-tongued review of a new biography of Patricia Highsmith, which, to be fair, from the sound of it, had it coming, but... Oh, wow. To stick with the movie we're about to discuss, she truly rode that author out into the Mediterranean and clubbed him over the head with an oar. You know, I'm thinking that there's a comparison to be made between Terry Castle and Omar Little, the anti-hero of The Wire, in that Terry has never turned her weapon on a civilian who didn't deserve it, you know? And Terry's weapon is formidable. But I'm thinking, too, if anybody out there is interested in, in Terry's work but maybe not inclined to read, like, queer theory, I wholeheartedly recommend you do a quick Google on her really iconic essay, Desperately Seeking Susan, in which Terry turns her formidable instrument on her conflicted, I would call it a frenemy ship, yeah. with Susan Sontag. It's a really, really delicious read. <laughs> and when you get to the ice cream scene... Yes, the ice cream is what makes think me of, describe think of it us. as delicious. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the ice cream scene is maybe the, the finest moment in 21st century uh, letters. Please, yes, and Please also think of us when you read what Susan Sontag thought about the intellect of people who teach at Stanford, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is to say, spoiler not alert, much. not no, much. No. <laughs> Maybe we should say a little bit about the 
film we're about to discuss for those of our listeners who don't know this movie. So we'll say that Patricia Highsmith has been widely adapted for film, right? There's been multiple interpretations of the talented Mr. Ripley, Price of Salt, which became Carol. So at Highsmith, is it fair to say, Adrian, that she's been known as a very like adaptable writer for a really long time by Hollywood? Well, I mean, remember her first novel to be adapted was Strangers on a Train by none other than Alfred Hitchcock. That minor work. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know you've made it as an adaptable author if like Hitch right. is like, hey, you right. know, I might... Uh, I might do this. I have a real affection for this. I believe it's 1999 version of Talented Mr. Ripley. It stars, as some of you might know, Matt Damon, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, like, just Kate Blanchett. And it stars in typical kind of... Miramax films, mm. mid-90s, and Patricia Highsmith fashion, The Country of Italy. Yes. Because while you're like, oh, wow, everyone is so compromised and, you know, people and the bodies keep piling up, you're just like, but boy, is it all beautiful. I was going to qualify The Country of Italy as viewed by Italian-Americans. Or I, I guess in this case, Mengele is Italian... Is he a British director? I believe he's a Anthony British Mengele? director. Yeah. Okay. What was? He's dead. So... People who fetishize Italy from a distance. <laughs> and man, did Terry take us through the nooks and crannies of this story in like a fascinating way. But like, I just, I really love this movie. Like, I, I will say that I think this is like mostly a pretty successful movie in a way that I wouldn't say of every film that we're rewatching this season. I think it hangs yeah, together yeah. in a screen adaptation way, in a casting and performance way, in a set design and sort of setting and location way. Like, it's a really pleasurable, although gruesome at certain points, I find it to be like a mostly really pleasurable film to watch. Oh yeah. All three of us came away actually liking the acting more than we had when it first came out, I think. Is that fair to say? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. we all felt that overall it was more accomplished. It has the kind of sheen of a of a 90s prestige picture. Totally. Like it's very clear that like this is the kind of, you know, movie that like sort of lives on the corner of the art house and the multiplex, right? Like you can tell yourself you're watching something. With a halo spotlight on Gwyneth Paltrow the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can tell yourself you're watching something kind of serious while actually a lot of it is just like beautiful Italian right. scenery and people playing jazz. But it's got more going mm-hmm. on. It's thematically coherent. It's beautifully acted. Matt Damon really does a terrific mm-hmm. job. You know, and then there are these supporting players from, I think, Philip Baker Hall to to James Rebhorn. That's to, whose name I was trying to remember. I really like yeah, him. Yeah. To Philip Seymour Hoffman and Kate Blanchett, who Ugh. almost, if the people at the center of the story weren't so magnetic, they'd walk away with this movie, right? It's just like they are... It's insane. It's yeah. so good. It's such a stacked cast. It's it's really tr- quite, quite tremendous. When you have Kate Blanchett and Philip Seymour Hoffman in the supporting roles that have probably 20 minutes of screen time between the two of them, yeah, you know you've got some high octane casting. The discussion we had with Terry focuses largely on the sort of queer aesthetic of the film and the ways both the story and the adaptation of the story as directed by Anthony Minghella have been queered or not queered. I, I feel like there's an analogy to be made between how you were a doe wandering into the woods of miscongeniality and like even though I had seen the talented Mr. Ripley before I felt like a doe in the woods wandering into the sort of queer aesthetics of this film where I was like I was once a 16 year old straight girl in Minnesota who had no idea this was a gay movie and then like Adrian and Terry just roundly laugh at me. <laughs> but you know, we all have to play the dough in the woods sometimes. Well, I mean, it's kind of an interesting movie mm-hmm. in that way, right? Almost all Highsmith stories have a kind of queer subtext, right? But 
Mingella's film comes at a moment when the forthright thing yes, is yes. to kind of start baiting and switching a little bit desubtextualizing that being like hey you know that's, that's just kind of here and 1999 i guess was historically sort of the moment when you could do that where you could sort of say and by the way this is also a queer story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i think that's sort of become the way she is adapted now that, mm-hmm. like, that you just kind of it's, mu- it's much easier to let that kind of frisson kind of hover over her stories, whereas something like Strangers on a Train, right, couldn't quite acknowledge this stuff. You have to be in the know in order to sort of pick up on it. And in the other direction, the price of salt can't exist without the queer subtext is more super text in the price of salt. Yeah, there's a spectrum. Did you know there's a spectrum in gender and sexuality, Adrian? I don't know if you do that. No, I was thinking as you were talking that there's actually a little bit more analogous tether between Talented Mr. Ripley and Miss Congeniality than I was even originally thinking a minute ago. Like, Ripley comes out in 1999, Miss Congeniality comes out in 2000, and both of them have this sort of, like, queerness lurking right underneath the surface that if it had been more super textual would have relegated that film to a much smaller audience and kind of art house framing, right? But like... I guess, although, I mean, Gela, remember, he had just come off his Oscar win for The English mm-hmm. Patient. And remember, isn't this also the time of Brokeback Mountain? No, no. Brokeback Mountain is 2005. And that is a very crucial five years, Oh, wow, years, it's that I much think. later. Yeah, no, and right, there's no right. gay okay. sex in Talented Mr. Ripley, let's not forget either. There's a that lot of true. longing gazes, but there's no sexual explicitness. I mean, yeah, Matt Damon, I fucks Jude Law. As explicitly as someone can I fuck someone, yes. And, and in a way that, frankly, you cannot, but... When it's Jude Law you're looking at, or that era Jude Law. Or Jude Law's naked ass, yeah. Anyway, well, you can hear us disagree about this more, even in this episode. (laughs) Oh yeah, let's summarize the movie a little bit. What is The Talented Mr. Ripley about? Yeah. So The Talented Mr. Ripley is the story of a, a young man named Tom Ripley that we don't really know very much about when we first meet him, other than that he's not rich. We meet him at a musician at a posh party, right? right. So we, assume, we we get a sense of him that is educated and clever, but perhaps not of the upper crust. And he is sent by the father of a young man named Dickie Greenleaf to Italy to basically bring Dickie back stateside. To America and to capitalist good sense and duty. Yeah, uh, Dickie has the camp in the way that, you know, I feel like in the 1950s, uh, a lot of rich American kids did, uh, to Europe, to its jazz clubs, to sort of idle expat existence. He's a jet setter. Tom tracks down Dickie. And, well, we won't say very much more other than to say that almost immediately once he meets Tom, the plan either seems to change or he starts pursuing several plans at the same time mm-hmm, in a sense that mm-hmm, he very, mm-hmm. very efficiently, with a very chilling kind of efficiency, uh, insinuates himself into Dickie's life to a point where it becomes unclear, does he want Dickie or does he want to be Dickie? If I were pitching The Talented Mr. Ripley to an industry gatekeeper, I would pitch it as The Great Gatsby meets Single White Female. Ooh. Right? 
That's how I would pitch it. The single white female is another 90s movie. Oh, that, shit. Like, we should. Perhaps deserves some of our consideration. But for now, we will take it to... The... I'm trying to think of a famous bridge in Italy that we could take it to, and I'm... The Ponte Vecchio. Okay, that's... Take it to the Ponte Vecchio. <laughs> ah, every time you speak Italian, I'm so delighted remembering that line from Inglorious Bastards about how Germans don't have a good ear for Italian accents, but your ears, your accent is very good. You defy the stereotype, Adrian. Whereas I always think of, of a joke from, because we were talking about dracula earlier wait did we talk about this thing or was that we're always talking about drac i mean when aren't we talking about dracula because we're always talking about dracula i don't know if you ever saw the parody dracula dead and loving it Uh there's a a scene in it where mel brooks is informed that his his i think it's his wife or whatever is like she's nosferatu and he goes she's italian (laughs) (laughs) so yeah there's that oh man i'm so glad that people come to us for cool jokes. Okay, so we're taking it to... Taking it to the Ponte Vecchio. Indeed. To the Bridge of Sighs. <laughs> and we hope you enjoy our discussion with the wonderful and iconic Harry Castle. Enjoy. So Terry, we haven't formally met, but I did witness you be very wonderfully salty at a public humanities meeting before the shutdown, and I completely fell in love with you because you were just real salty and in this meeting where everybody else was being (laughs) really... (laughs) By that you mean cancelable? Yes! Instantly cancelable. Well, I think well, we were talking about the public humanities in in the framework of what the university's responsibility is to protect people within the university who voice opinions towards the public, and you went off on a tear about I bet I did I'm the need sure for such protections and how little the university does. And I was like, I like her. I like this Terry Castle. <laughs> Well, it's just my paranoia speaking. You can see why I like Patricia Highsmith. Um, Yeah, sure. (laughs) Of course. So we were still waiting for the academic Patricia Highsmith. The true academic uh, Patricia Highsmith novel. Yes, yes. She should have written a campus novel. I wish she had. (laughs) Where someone wakes up to find out they've accidentally plagiarized someone else's book. That would be the the ultimate. And so then... Then you have to murder the person and take on their identity. <laughs> and, and then you realize that they made up one of their main sources that just doesn't exist. Yes, right. Yes, yes. Okay, so Patricia Highsmith, I love her. One thing that I wanted to ask is when did you both first encounter this movie? Like, was this something you saw in theaters because you had been obsessed with the book? Like, how? what was your, what do you remember of your earliest experience of the movie? <laughs> I can answer because I'm 200 years old. Uh, I mm-hmm. saw it when it came out, which was 1999, I think. And um, I remember being distinctly underwhelmed by it at the time. However, when I watched it a couple of weeks ago again, 
I was completely blown away by it. And this is an experience that I've had several times recently with re-watching something. I don't know what it is about it. And interestingly, I had the same reaction to Carol, the Todd Haynes Mm. film adaptation of The Price of Salt, which was Highsmith's quote-unquote, lesbian novel, where I didn't like it at all at first. I thought, what's her name? Rooney Mara was terrible, and Kate Blanchett, her plastic surgery was so visible that it was putting me off every time I saw her. And then I have had to watch it because I've been editing that novel for Norton, and they wanted a little bit about the relationship between the film and the novel. And so I've actually now watched Carol about 20 times. So I, I haven't watched a talented Mr. Ripley so many times, but I could see watching it again shortly because I just was stunned by it in retrospect. And the main thing that struck me right away, and I don't know if you will agree with this, Adrian, I don't know when you saw it first, but the acting is incredible. It's so good. All the main players. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. And it was a wrench for me also to see Philip Seymour Hoffman. I know. In it. I had sort of forgotten he played that part, and he was so riveting. You you can't take your eyes off him, yeah. mm-hmm. and his voice is bull. But even Gwyneth Paltrow, it's like she's grown on me. Uh, she's really much better than I, for a long time, thought she was, and she she adds a lot of high Smithian complexity to that part. I think. As she realizes. High Smithian, very high Smithian complexity. I agree with you that I'm not always a Gwyneth Paltrow fan, but the I really goop, like her the performance goop phase in this movie. Is, yeah, uh, fuck goop. Like, <laughs> we're not here to talk about vagina eggs. But, <laughs> but, but I think that her performance is also very Hitchcockian, right? Yes. Like, I mean, yes. I'm certainly not the first person to yeah. note the Hitchcockian parallels of the talented Mr. Ripley. And the way she looks, like sort of Grace Kelly and um, very Kim icy Novak. Blonde. Yeah. Yeah. Very icy blonde Gwyneth Paltrow and also Kate Blanchett, who friend of the podcast Ingu Kang refers to as Kathy Blanket, which I really like. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Right. But Adrian, what do you think? I had seen it a little bit more frequently, I think, over the years, because it, it's one of these movies that shows up on, on streaming services from time to time. I All saw it time. on DVD when it first came out, so maybe a year oh. after it, it first came out. And I was pretty smitten with it then. I think I felt I couldn't really like it because Matt Damon was not someone one should like. You're right. <laughs> and certainly wasn't at the time. And even though I think I was even then kind of aware that the movie kind of used his sort of pretty boy image in a really canny way, mm-hmm. in the way that it unearthed this kind of blandness in him that you're like, yeah, he's affable enough. Yeah. Of course these people would fall for him. Yes. And- yeah. You know, he doesn't do this thing where like pretty boy goes sinister. It's the sinisterness yes. is the is yes. the prettiness in some yes. way, right? Yes. Um, so I thought that was fantastic. I must say that, yeah, rewatching it now, the Philip Seymour Hoffman performance is just so is, is heartbreaking. Um <laughs> yeah. it's also it it feels to me closest 
to the spirit of the book. I mean, I think that the movie does some interesting takes on the book. Freddy, the character, feels like straight out of the book. And the scene where, well, spoiler alert to people who haven't seen a 20-year-old movie, but where Tom is obviously being put into the position where he has to kill Freddy is, is so perfect because he has this unctuous intensity. And you can tell that he's putting it all together bit yes. by bit in this kind of in this kind of slovenly way. There's almost this relief when when Tom Ripley brings the bust yes, the uh, down on bust his head. Onto his head, yeah. Yeah. As you know, I've been rereading the book this week and he actually doesn't kill him with the bust in the book. No, exactly. Uh, some, That's I forget right. what it is that he uses. Uh, an ashtray. It's like D.H. Lawrence in Women in Love when yeah. Lady Ottoline Morell smashes Rupert over the head with an ashtray. It's so interesting. There's a beautiful essay you wrote about Highsmith not too long ago in the LRB where you called Highsmith the poet laureate of Oops, I Killed Him. <laughs> Uh, and in some way, I, I, in rereading the book, which I, I also did for this, it actually describes the movie of the talented Mr. Ripley almost better than it does the book. Because in the book, the interesting thing is, right, Tom has the idea that he's going to kill this guy pretty early yes. in the scene. He's like, there yes. is no way out. Yes. Whereas in the movie, Freddie leaves and Tom yeah. is kind of relaxing. And then yes. when he overhears him talking to the landlady, he's like, this guy's toast. I yes. don't have to, you know. Yes. And and there's something so beautifully manipulative about this scene yeah. that you're like almost like, well, thank goodness my friend Tom didn't have to do this. <laughs> oh no. Now he must murder yeah. this man with his using... Yes, because he's gonna blow the whistle on him. Yeah. Um Yeah. I mean it's interesting. I mean, Mingella, I guess, wrote the whole screenplay adaptation, and he changes quite a lot of things in the story. Yeah. Uh, the character of um, Meredith, a.k.a. Kate Blanket, um, doesn't <laughs> even appear in the book. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess one of the things that, thinking about that line, oops, I killed him, and her, I sort of wondered if anybody had noticed reading it that in the book, as opposed to the film, it was a case where the film I had a much more recent memory of. And so it shaped my sense of that scene. In the mm. book, the murder of Dickie is actually seriously premeditated and I thought yeah. oops I made a mistake <laughs> but there are you know in a way the Freddy murder just comes out of the blue and he just has to do it because he's uh, yeah. threatened and feeling persecuted I mean I, I kind of think that this just means that Mengele like you has read a lot of Highsmith because mm -hmm. yes. there are so many people right the two faces of January the main character there uh, suspension of mercy yep. dog's ransom right there's a lot of a lot of Highsmith characters that are in that predicament I also was struck this time around that the question of money is very early is raised very early and the idea hey I could kill Dickie comes up before he goes on the boat with him and I actually like yeah. the fact that the movie removes that from us that because yes. Matt Damon is affable kind of bland and just because of the visual medium kind of impenetrable to us, we don't yeah. quite know when it becomes clear to him that... He hates Dickie. Yeah. He loves him and he hates him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I 
will make a confession that I have not read the book. Um, and so I'm speaking primarily of everything that I learned from the movie. But what uh -huh. hearing both of you talk about what you learned from observing how the adaptation was affected is that I think that Mingella made some interesting visual choices for the murder weapons. Yes. Like all of, I'm th when you were talking about the Philip Seymour Hoffman scene right. and how Tom Ripley kills Freddie with the bust, that immediately follows right. Freddie having made fun of the way the room Decoration. is decorated in a way that gestures back to Tom's inability to fit in on a class level. Yeah. And so too, in the Dickie murder scene, Tom murders Dickie with an oar from the boat, which is also something that like originates organically within the architecture of the scene itself. Yeah. And I, I think that's actually really skilled adaptation to to connect those dots in a visual and narrative yes. way. Yes. But what, are the, what do you guys think? Well, it is an oar in the book as well, mm, but it's mm. a, they're in a speedboat. They're in a motorboat rather than a mm -hmm. rowboat, which is for right. some reason what I remembered, <laughs> or a sailboat. Um, I didn't have the the details right, or indeed the fact that Highsmith shows him thinking it through and he notices the oar mm -hmm. when he gets on the boat. He also notices that there's a kind of anchor thing, a big rope attached to a piece of cement. And that's obviously mm. what he's going to use to weight down Dickie's body once he hoists him over the side. I mean, I think you're right that there is something about the cinematic adaptation of this book particularly, but maybe this is true for something like Strangers on a Train as well, where almost the, the pictures almost become more vivid than the text itself. Because, I mean, the, the way you talk about it in your piece, which I loved, is is about this lightning quick slippage from normal to horrific and back again. And of course, that is much easier to establish. On film, You know, yeah. once a character in a book has said, I could smash this guy's head in with an oar, you're like, whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, Whereas right. like, we've been in this picture-perfect postcard kind of, you know, Miramax 1990s movie where like, yeah. you know, white people have problems in gorgeous locales yes. and suddenly Jude Law has a has an oar sticking yes. out of his, his and then yeah. next thing we know Tom Ripley is like in a gorgeous apartment again right like yes. the sudden flittering that you're talking about like visually is it's really easy to do because we kind of yeah. we groove along with one kind of movie right like oh it's kind of romantic yeah. it's a travelogue it's a period piece etc oh and now ouch, <laughs> uh, Jude Law is covered in, yes. in yes. gunk Oops. well I mean that raises a hugely interesting issue, which is the difference between visual and verbal art forms, yeah. um, but also the book in this case and the adaptation of the storyline, the development of the storyline through dialogue more than through what we get in the book, which is kind of first free and direct discourse kind of thing. Right. What I think is so interesting, however, about the book still is, yes, in one way, Highsmith is a very old school, novelistic technician. She wrote a book on plotting suspense fiction yeah. in the early 60s. And it's mm. an excellent book. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. And it, you don't have to write a thriller. You can be interested in writing anything. And it's a great source of inspiration, actually. She sort of tells you how to do things. 
So she realizes at a certain point that she's got to shift very gradually, but nonetheless intensely towards Ripley murdering and wanting to murder because it, it mm-hmm. has has not been established that thoroughly before. Or you go for quite a long way and you're thinking, well, this is a weird relationship and he seems to be in love with Dickie and right. so on. And the jazz, which is another in the film, the Mingella element that's been added. So she has to do what is a kind of basic writing task, which is to change the circumstances enough that we don't rebel against the plausibility of it. Right. And some people could say, well, she doesn't do it enough, or it seems stagey when writers have to do this. I mean, Virginia Woolf always used to talk about getting a character into a room and out of a room in a way that would not make the reader feel manipulated. And you just, you look at it in the book and you think, Wow, she does bring it off. I mean, you can tell you're in a kind of old-fashioned fictional universe, the realm, it seems like, of the lisible, or what Bart would call the readerly, that is convention-bound, but she does it. I guess it would make a very interesting class or course or something to compare the adaptation of the talented Mr. Ripley with indeed the adaptation of The Price of Salt, Carol, because both novels are written in a very disciplined way from the point of view of the protagonist in Ripley, it's Ripley. We don't enter the minds of anybody else in the course of reading except what we can infer from what they do or say or what Ripley is thinking about them. The same is true in The Price of Salt. We see everything through the eyes of Therese, the Rooney Mara character. And in the novel... There are no scenes in which Therese is not present as the viewer. Right. Whereas in the film version, Phyllis Nage, who was the scriptwriter for that adaptation, has scenes of Carol by herself, for instance, in her lawyer's office and fighting with the other lawyers and, and so on, fighting with her husband, hard. With her ex. Exactly. And... That can't happen in the novel because we just have to stick with Therese. And it works perfectly there because one Mm -hmm. reads that novel. I think if you're sort of its ideal target reader, you're falling in love with Carol as fast as Therese is. And, you know, it creates a kind of youthful 
infatuated state of mind. Oh, what's she doing now? And I'm waiting for her on the curb. And where is she? And uh, things like that. And Therese is a basically plausible character in the sense that she seems trustworthy to us and in a way simple and not hugely sophisticated until sort of quite late in the novel. But with the case of Ripley, we're doing a slide from a guy who, well, he seems in the backstory parts of it in New York, he seems definitely sly and involved in little illicit schemes of one sort or another, but harmless Mm -hmm. in a way. And we're going to see him morph into truly someone who commits monstrous acts, and they just seem to get worse and worse and worse. Um, And so in some ways, the narrative point of view is the same in both. Mm -hmm. Sort of it's Highsmith's mode to focalize things through the protagonist, but it's with a very different result. You're sort of horrified by your own identification with Ripley. Right. The movie makes so clear that the whole disaster is set in motion by his identification makes the power of the viewer's identification or I guess the readers in the case of the novel all the more powerful. Oh my god. I also think that like there is something about in his prime Jude Law and in her prime Gwyneth Paltrow that's just kind of hateable right? That's the thing they're they're so unbelievably attractive. They're They're so so beautiful. I mean that's not it's not jeunesse dorée it's whatever comes after jeunesse dorée it's like platinum jeunesse or something like that. Yes right. They're just they're, they're stratospheric in their attractiveness. And you're like, someone really should take an oar to these people, right? And, yes, and, right, yeah. <laughs> and, and, they fuck, and they fuck up everyone's life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the scene, which I had totally forgotten. Now, I know you wanted to talk a bit about the kind of gay thematic. Oh, yeah. And in this, in this film, <laughs> um, I had blocked this scene out. I did not remember it. And that was Jude Law in the bathtub and Tom Ripley. Yeah. Matt Damon has come and is sitting, you know, by the edge of platonically, the bathtub. Platonically sitting by the edge of the <laughs> yes. bathtub. Platonically asking to get in, you know. Nothing gay about that. Yes. Like friends do. Exactly. <laughs> of course. And then we see Jude and I assume it was he, not a body double, but we see him naked from the back walking. He's got a nice out. ass. Oh my God, yeah. I could Like two believe. scoops of ice cream. Oh, you all said God. it. Not I. Yes, gelato. Uh, <laughs> yes, two scoops of gelato, uh, maraschino cherry or something. So, well, I wondered why I blocked it out, but I also wondered what your take on that aspect yeah. of the film is nowadays. Adrian. I mean, so so Laura texted me yesterday that it's the gayest movie. She, I think you said you'd forgotten that is how gay it is. <laughs> so gay. Yeah. So, so like, I have to narrate a little bit because I think that I am the, I'm going to assume that I'm the only person in this conversation who is a straight presenting teenager in the Minnesota suburbs when this movie came out. Uh-huh. I remember, I, I don't think I saw it in the theater, but I remember seeing it around the time it came out. And when I saw it as a teenager, the yes. gay layer completely eluded 
eluded when? me. I missed it yeah. entirely. Yeah. I want to oh. come back to that. But I think that, and it did come back in my life. But, but I think that that had to do, obviously, my ignorance is part of that equation. But I think also that had to do with what a big capital M, capital S movie star movie this was. Yes. And the way it was marketed, yes. I went back and I watched the original trailer. Yeah. There's nothing gay in the trailer. Like, in the way that this movie was packaged, no pun intended, the gayness is not foregrounded at all. I disagree with you. Interesting. I disagree. Tell me why. Well, there are, at least according to what I discovered on YouTube, two trailers. Okay. And they use some of the same clips, but both of them are just, from my point of view, saturated with what's going on here. One of them shows the scene in the jazz club where they're all happy and Jude Law kisses Matt on the cheek, but sort of it's a bit something or another. Mm -hmm. And then there are just these moments of sort of reaction shots of Matt looking at Jude, and then we see Jude Law doing his almost like Princess Diana, like <laughs> doe-eyed eyelids at her. A lot of people may not have recognized that. That's what I'm interested and in. Yeah. Straight people would not recognize it, but anybody else with some sensitivity to that world or subculture. Right. Yeah. And just props to Matt Damon, because not since Tony Curtis leered at Charlton Heston <laughs> has someone just <laughs> I fucked someone else on, yeah. <laughs> on screen quite this much. I mean, he really... I totally... I mean, but I think... So I agree with 99.9% .9 of what you just said, Terry. I guess the only thing I would add is that <laughs> I think... What's wrong with you? That's not a... <laughs> I... <laughs> You're right again. Right again. But I, th I have to believe that there had to be just enough plausible deniability in like concealing this movie's queerness just enough to make it mass marketable because you look at where all of those mm -hmm. movie stars were in their careers in 1999 I just looked up Gwyneth Paltrow's IMDb yeah. this is the first movie right. she did after her Oscar win for Shakespeare in Love mm -hmm. there's no mm -hmm. way those actors at the peaks of their late 90s careers working for Harvey Weinstein are going to be in a movie that is uniformly a gay movie, you know? Well, now, Jude Law had been in Wild. Wait, 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 wait. Jude Law was in Wild. Wild. And that, oh gosh. I mean, there were certain things in his per his performance of Dickie that come straight out of his previous performance of Bosey. Interesting. I haven't seen that. Including in the scene of his murder, what sets Tom Ripley off is he's saying, you know, you're boring, you're boring and yes. I hate you, yes. actually. And and he has, they have a screaming fight before Matt grabs the oar. And there's a scene, which is one of the greatest, I think, displays of film acting that I've seen maybe forever in Wild, in which Bosey is arguing with his father, the ridiculous Marquis yeah. of Queens Queensbury, Queensbury yeah. and screams at him, is screaming at him. And Jude Law is fabulous at this kind of character who is spoiled, 
petulant, no impulse control, just comes out with spouting off uh, venom at the other person. And I was reminded of that. You could not play a gayer character than Lord Alfred Douglas. So likewise, Matt Damon... He was already kind of coded as, you know, Ben Affleck's best friend right. forever uh, <laughs> from Goodwill Hunting, a movie Let's that start I rumors. Matt and Ben oh, that I hated. Oh, it's awful. But then he made The Departed. That was the movie that mm. changed my mind about Matt Damon. I just think there's still waters ran deep with him and you couldn't really he's always been a bit of a blank a bit of a cipher as a star and compared with ben affleck or many other young male stars of the time his heterosexual public profile was at least to me not very pronounced so he became Jason Bourne and started just mm -hmm. murdering everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah. Well, it just seemed like he was a kind of you didn't know what. Mm -hmm. And there was something about his looks that conveyed that too, a kind of almost Clark Kent asexuality, if anything. So, and I also think Kate Blanchett, has been a wild one from babyhood. And she had played gay on the stage, you know, even before Carol came out, she was talking about her bisexuality. And then they made her, the film studio made her shut up about it and not talk about it. <laughs> so I don't think she would have been that terrified. Anthony Minghella apparently was very taken with seeing her in something. And so he was kind of a bit besotted with her. Hmm. And so that was all fine. And she just went with it. I mean, the other guy, what's his name? The one who plays Peter. I think uh, Jack Davenport. Yes. He's a like, classic kind of Rupert Everett, gay British yeah, yeah. actor type. So Rupert so, Everett. Yeah, was, yes, was Rupert yes. Everett busy? Do we know? Like, what? <laughs> how is that not a like Rupert yeah. Everett must have been like you put me in the movie without putting me in the One of the interesting things in rewatching it this time around was while I thought the queer subtext was so strong, the, the interesting thing, of course, is the blandness of Damon and the queerness of the Damon character yes. in the way yes. that, like, ultimately, Dickie comes off queerer than Jude yes. and Tom does, right? There's an interesting way in which 
when Tom asks him, what's it going to be, Dickie, the sax with the trumpet or something like that? Yes. You're like, yeah, I mean, fair point, uh, Tom. Like, this this guy just exudes <laughs> kind of a pansexual energy here. He's like, oh, wear my clothes. Oh, live in my yeah. house. But you can't get in the bath. That's where yeah. the water's edge stops. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah right. right? There's something really wild about the way, which is like, if in the book, homosexuality comes up, but Marge brings it up. Is that right? Because I know a lot about Highsmith herself and her feelings about gay men in particular, I feel like in the book it is very explicit from pretty early before he even gets to Italy. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the whole scene of Mr. Greenleaf, the father, kind of following him into a bar. Oh, I never put that together. Oh, my God, yes. Now that you're saying it like that. (laughs) It's there. Well, this is like Highsmith. She's got all of these kind of embedded clues. And the person that Tom Ripley is, he's staying in some guy's house, but there's been some other older guy that he now finds repulsive, Ripley, that is. There's like, in this backstory, it seems that Highsmith is imagining for him, only doing it very elliptically. So you have to be paying attention. But I think all the bits are there that he, he's he been living a gay life as mm-hmm. since he was a teenager and in New York. And I think she even suggests very delicately at points that he has been a hustler in New York. And that's how he's earned money until he figures mm-hmm. out these schemes for extorting people of their income tax. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was surprised because I'd always thought, oh yeah, people people are always saying about the Ripley books, well, there's a kind of hint that Ripley <laughs> has homoerotic feelings for some of the other characters. I said, a hint? <laughs> it's like it's there from the very beginning. <laughs> it's, it's like Pip has great expectations. Right. <laughs> and we know it. Um, uh, so, and the relationship with Aunt Dolly or Dottie, whatever her name is, he's obviously run away from her mm-hmm. so he can go about his business, his secret business. And that was... In a funny way, that was Highsmith's life in New York, right, too. That's true. So mm-hmm. she knew mm-hmm. all about it and presenting this kind of mask-like self to people. I love the way you you put embedded clues, and I, I can't. There were some of those in the movie too, beyond the obvious homoerotic layers. There were some very small details that I can't speak authoritatively whether they came from the book or not. But there was in particular one one pair of scenes that really struck me early on when Tom gets to Rome he's just sort of wandering around Rome taking in this like giant cosmopolitan city and you see him observe a man sitting on another man's lap Mm -hmm. and and like that gives a certain signal and then that shot is immediately followed 
by Tom going up some plaza steps as a pair of nuns go down <laughs> the plaza steps. And I just thought that was such a clever, like, homosocial echo and also such a clever, like, geometric mm-hmm. positioning, right? Like, in the visual language of the film, we're seeing homoeroticism, like, descend upon Tom, even though it's never being stated explicitly. Yeah. And I thought that was so well that's done great. in the direction. Oh, that's great. That's great. I just now I just read and I can't claim to be a like expert on everything despite yes, my Yes, you can. You can hear. On this podcast you may. On this podcast you are. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently the two men where one is sitting sort of straddling the yes. other just yes. on a, outside a cafe or something. There is a photograph by Cartier Bresson. Oh my god. Which is the same image basically and so excuse me professor what a pull Mingela yeah yeah yeah. and so that at the very least is symptomatic of how aware Mingela and his production designers Mm -hmm. were thinking Mm -hmm. about this the nuns, those scenes are right on mm. the Spanish steps. I thought Rome. it was the Spanish steps. I wasn't sure. And yeah. so the building that you catch a glimpse of just to the right is the room where Keats died. Oh, that's right. Uh, and Severn, his friend, was there. That's where they were when Keats died of tuberculosis. And so besides the nuns, you also have you know, the male poet, romantic poet, and Mm -hmm. his friend. So gay. And death, a sort of inevitability of death, Mm -hmm. almost more like Thomas Mann or something than Mm -hmm. um, to speak of someone German like my conversation partner here. Our valued (laughs) colleague. So we've already talked about class and sexuality, obviously, but there's also a racial layer to this movie that I wanted to dig into with Mm. both of you that came up for me when I was doing a little bit of the research on sort of how Mingella viewed this film. How Mandela feel... Mingella, how Mingella oh. envisioned this film. Oh, Nelson Mandela. Oh, that's <laughs> Nelson interesting. Mandela was no huge fan. Huge fan. <laughs> well, Winnie was kind of a handful, so I'm sure Jews <laughs> looked a little easier to cope with. Um, <laughs> sorry. Well, so I thought, no, I love that detour. So the first time I thought of this was in the moment when when Tom Ripley meets Dickie Greenleaf, right? Matt Damon comes yes. onto this beach. He says, you're he, so white. He says, you're so yeah. white, and that his whiteness yeah. is further accented by the, like, chartreuse Speedo he's wearing. It's, <laughs> yeah. like, the most flamboyant and also ill-fitting for the surroundings swimsuit yeah, I've ever seen. Yeah, it's beautiful costume design, yeah. It's really great <laughs> costume design. He sticks out like a sore thumb. So, like in the book, that's in the book, uh, uh, and he's wearing sort of like little bathing slippers, like a woman's. Oh my god, sandals as well as he comes down the beach. Right, yeah. like he doesn't have yeah. the right costume for the situation. So, so that tells us first of all that his skin color doesn't meet the sort of bronzed expectation of his surroundings, but it also reminds us that he would never be able to pull off this scam at all if he were anything but white, and that his whiteness Mm -hmm. is a critical part of his cover in being able to pass as someone who went to Princeton and might be traveling 
on a discretionary budget. But I was also noticing in the way that like Dickie Greenleaf talks about the Italians, he he, he refers mm-hmm. to them as primitive more than once. Every single Italian we see is dark haired and dark eyed, which is not the case. I'm actually Italian. Mm-hmm. I'm very blonde and blue eyed. And so there's a racialized distinction that the movie is drawing between this, like, blonde, glowing, moneyed class and the quote-unquote primitive Mm. Italian... Indigenous people, yeah. Yes, yes. And it's a very racialized layer. And then when Minghella talks about this in this article I found, he's talking about the scene... We're friends. ...where they sing the song... I'm not going to be able to pronounce the Italian. Thank you. And he's pointing out that it's a song about Italians who want to be American being yeah. sung in, yeah. in the scene by Americans who want to be Italian. So what do you both make of these racialized layers? I think there are a lot of different ways to approach it. One thing that does come to mind immediately is that Minghella, though he was British, was Ital- Anglo-Italian, and his parents, mm-hmm. both of them, were Italian descended, including his mother, even though she had an English sounding name. So I think there's Mm. probably, though it's not exactly comparable to the American situation where you had a massive Italian immigration starting in the 19th century and a lot of sort of popular discourse coming up about the you know, the Sicilians, how dirty and crude and uncivilized they all were, the Southern Italians, uh, by the by the sort of Caucasian... Uh, Dark, swarthy, savage. White press a lot of the time. There was a bit of that in Britain, too. Mm-hmm. And they lived in London, I think, and this was pretty cosmopolitan. But he must have run into people teasing him about it or something. So I think Mm. that would be the first place to go. I think connected to what you're saying, though, about, I mean, there is something now when we see the scene where Jude says, you're so white. I would connect it with the jazz element that runs through the first half of the film, because you only see actual... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. African, in this case, mostly mm-hmm. African American people on the record jackets. He's got Ornette Coleman, I think, and he's got this one and that one, Mingus. And even the band that's playing in Italy is almost all white, I think. If I'm not mistaken, the, the black faces you see on yeah, those album yeah, covers yeah. are the only faces of color you see in the entire movie. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, that's, yeah. What I'm, that's what I was. Uh, getting at. I mean, you know, one would have to relate this too to the the attempt of the film, which is a 1990s film, to be doing the 50s. If we saw a film of the novel made in the 50s, one, well, I don't know. You would perhaps have been likely to see with Tom Ripley getting off the ship and Meredith popping up uh, black porters, or at least when he was getting on in New York, Mm -hmm. you you wouldn't uh, necessarily when he's arriving in Italy, Mm -hmm. but the crew on the ship, that's where you would bring in your black 
get players to perform the role of the servants. At the party scene, too, where Mr. Greenleaf sees him playing the piano and sees the Princeton jacket. Um, Sees him playing classical piano in the Princeton jacket, I might note. Yes, yes, yeah. 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 Anyway... I mean, the, I must say that the way I'd always thought about the comment about how white he is, I mean, I, I think the racialized dimensions of this are clear, but it is also about what makes Dicky so upsetting for Tom is his ability to slip into and out of identities, right? Which is what... Which is privilege itself. Right, exactly, right? Yes. And, and yeah. the fact is that he can go to Italy and start looking, you know, quote-unquote like an Italian, which of course he doesn't, but, you know, but there's this <laughs> kind of, there's this kind of, right, the bronzeness is that of someone who can, who has the privilege to remake himself. And mm-hmm. Tom in the movie basically realizes that unless he gets violent, he doesn't have that same privilege. But I guess I hadn't, hadn't mm-hmm. thought about the fact that that's, of course, in the 1950s, right, in the wake of the war, et cetera, et cetera, of course, the ability to remake make yourself or not is both an extremely important one and it also has has often a lot to do with sexuality right that that a lot of people mm-hmm. who stayed in europe and i'm imagining maybe yes. freddie is one of yes. them right uh unclear whether he is yes uh, oh, right? interesting and marge too in a way yeah are people who are trying to get away from american mm-hmm. sexual mores mm-hmm. right like whether that is that they're gay or it could be that they're just you know, don't, don't, not very conventional, yes, right? Yes. It takes out the Piggy Guggenheim route. Yeah. I thought of both Giovanni's room and Gatsby a yeah. lot on this rewatch. And and Terry, you were saying earlier yeah. about your relationship to rewatching. Like, mm-hmm. I am an inveterate rewatcher, and like, I really evaluate how I feel about works in terms of how how much I think they reward a rewatch. And I think this film, oh. The Talented Mr. Ripley, can be watched over and over again, and you can get something new every time. Yes. Yes, but like yeah. I was thinking about this, Terry, when you were talking about Carol and the price of salt, too, in a way that's very similar to Gatsby in some ways. Both the price of salt and the talented Mr. Ripley present a working class protagonist who is fixing their desire on someone much wealthier, right? Glamorous. Glamorous, yes, exotic. So sexual desire and capital basically are both kind of conflated in in those gazes like terry can you relate that a little bit to to what you know about highsmith you know like was that was that representative of her yes totally she was from texas she was from fort worth basically and her grandparents were fundamentalist christians Hmm and ran a boarding house. Her father was a total grifter who ran off as soon as she was born. Her mother was very beautiful, but also, how can I put it? They were all sort of what one used to say innocently and what one was oneself, white trash. But The little interesting wrinkle was her mother um, somehow got the training to be a commercial artist. And so she and especially when Highsmith's stepfather, Stanley Highsmith, came around, he was also a commercial artist. And so they went from Texas to Manhattan to get jobs in the 40s or actually maybe late 30s. So 
Highsmith had a kind of split experience between living as a child in Fort Worth, Texas, then being transplanted, and they lived in the village, and her mother and stepfather worked as graphic designers. Then she herself went to Barnard for college, and you can see her. She's there from, I think, 1939 or so, through the Second World War, the first years of the Second World War, and then really launches herself on Manhattan. And it's clear that she's sort of almost appallingly upwardly mobile. She is desperate to meet famous people. And she succeeds because the thing about her when she herself, when she was young, she's incredibly beautiful. She was stunning. She really was. And she became like a sort of monster later in life. But um, she was so beautiful. She slept with men and women both. But Also, what drove her was a desire to get to Europe. It's like Manhattan wasn't good enough. This was all when she was about 20 years old. And so she did go, and she had just finished Strangers on a Train, and Hitchcock had actually bought it the same week, I think, it was issued. An incredible story. I mean, she had this instant success as a young woman. So she went from having very little. She'd been working part of the time as a kind of comic book writer in a sort of comic book factory in Manhattan. And all of a sudden, she's the successful novelist of the moment. That fame that she briefly achieved in the U.S. did not survive, in part because she relocated basically to different places in in Europe, France and uh, Switzerland. Mm. But there was obviously a drive in her to escape the world she came from, to hide her background, to sort of learn about the finer things in life, whatever they were, wherever they were. She was interested in the visual art. She was interested in, you know, fine dining and wine and drinks and a kind of connoisseurship that she associated with Europe. So Ripley is very, very true to that. And it it's one of the things that interests me most about her now this desire to erase mm-hmm. a past that was extremely painful to her. Hearing you explain it like this, and I must say I've read two of the biographies of her and have always been struck by this as well, but I hadn't sort of put it together that Minghella, of course, in his film, kind of plays up the class angle a little bit more even than she does, even though it's very yeah. clear in the Ripley novel as well, in the sense that one of the things that I'd completely forgotten is that in the, in the movie, Tom yes. pretends to know Dickie. In the book, he did actually go to Princeton? In the book, he does. Uh, they don't seem to have been close or anything. No, but he, he but doesn't. He, it rings no. a bell. No, he, he doesn't know him. But what? But, he's, but he says like this guy, this yeah, name rings a bell. I know, but that's the weird, that is the uncanniness that's a lie? Okay. of Highsmith. 
and how she starts to destabilize our sense of okay so she doesn't I'm wrong. he didn't go to princeton um, no no but i guess i they i thought they crossed paths some other no, way no never mind <laughs> the reason why i bring it up is that the Mengele movie right plays up i think the class difference partly Laura mentioned the fact that this is a 90s movie and like the queer subtexts are somewhat hidden. There's, of course, the other thing that, that you're trying to get away from in a, at this point, late 90s yes. movie, which is the murderous yes. gay stereotype, right? Like, Andrew Cunanan, yes. Right. Andrew Cunanan, you're trying to get away from, this is the movie that started, the, the, the decade that started with Basic Instinct, right? Yeah. And in some way, we can all get, you know, the idea of someone murdering because they're gay is is something that you're not going to want to put in your movie anymore. Yeah. The idea of killing <laughs> Truly, because- that that is the American dream. Yeah. I mean, what could be more American than that? Yeah. Uh, so, so I feel like there is a, there's an interesting thing that the, the movie kind of talks about class in order not to have to talk yes. about sexuality yes. that much, which, yes. as you point out, Terry, is actually a really interesting mm -hmm. thing. It's a very high Smithian move. She's also really good at at kind of uh, at kind of not forgetting about sexuality, but but subsuming it under questions of socioeconomics mm -hmm. in a way that feels that that sort of makes it also part of the story, but not the main point of the story. It almost makes class a red herring. Like, it's not quite a red herring in the sense that it doesn't lead anywhere, but it... it, it I love the way you just laid that out, because that depicts how both the book and... Well, I guess yeah. I can only speak for the movie, how, how class is at the foreground of the movie. Like, that's the surface of the water, but the queerness is actually what animates all of the drama underneath. It's the whole bathtub. That's the whole bathtub. Yes, exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself, uh, my valued collaborator. Uh, I don't know that it's an either or, though, for Highsmith. It's, you know, she, uh, to some degree, obfuscated yeah. her background hid her texas roots from everybody and did the same with her sexuality to some degree but i think the things are all of a piece i don't think they're separate uh for her because in this period and indeed i would maintain still for many well, we don't even have them anymore, but gay men and lesbians, we don't have them anymore. <laughs> but uh, part of the fantasy of being gay was, and Susan Sontag's notes on camp is mm -hmm. exhibit A here, was that you became an aristocrat. You right. became a member of the landed gentry without any land and without any gentryness, <laughs> and you were suddenly mm. a superior being. And even lesbians could do this a little bit. When you yeah. look at Manhattan culture of the 1940s, one thing that's very interesting to me about Highsmith's life in the 40s before she went to Europe was that during the Second World War, well, beginning in the early 30s, all of the women who had been associated in the 1920s, the so-called sapphic modernists, Janet Flanner, Juna Barnes, mm -hmm. the author of Nightwood, a lot of the American and British writers who had been expatriates in Paris, they had to leave 
And with the German invasion, they had to leave, plus all of the German Jews who were in Paris, often very important cultural figures, especially the women photographers Mm. like Giselle Freund and Ruth Bernhardt, whom Highsmith knew both of them. And they had to flee for their lives. And they all ended up in Manhattan. Erica Mann, who, you know, married Auden to... Uh, that's where she started. And they're all there. And so there's a kind of reconstitution of the Janet Flanner spent the Second World War mainly in the United States and New York. They recreated that world to a large extent in Manhattan. And that was the kind of heyday of a kind of lesbian high life or aristocracy that would later kind of move over to Hollywood. And indeed, there were cross links with Hollywood through people like Greta Garbo and others. But anyway, little historical pedantry. Yeah, I mean, if you're gay, you're you're better than everybody else. Well, this else. podcast knows that. <laughs> or, you're, you're, you, or, or you fall outside you're of the class smarter. system. You're right? yeah. <laughs> I mean, even in a, in a book like the, like the Price of Salt, right? Part of Carol's attraction or attractiveness is that she's just well put together and mm-hmm. she just, she's yes. just glamorous, right? The car. And that yeah. car she has, the, yeah. the Packard. <laughs> Which is why, like, why anyone would ever make a movie yeah. about uh, of that book that doesn't star Kate Blanchett. It's, uh, I mean, it would be shocking. Uh, I was also thinking about how many movies reinterpreting the 50s came out around this time, right? There's there's Far From Heaven, Todd Haynes' other movie. Todd Haynes, we know, is a big, you know, mm-hmm. Pat- Patricia Highsmith stan. There was um, yeah. Yeah. Pleasantville is like a very yeah. 50s remix. What else am I thinking of? There was mm. another one. That, it's surprisingly good. I There's another one that, that I'm thinking of. But I'm wondering what was it about the... There's a, they, they, they did a revolutionary road, but I think that was that in the was early later, 2000s. With, that, yeah, that was like with 2009 Leo. with Leo and Kate. Oh, okay. Oh, oh I wow. was thinking of The Hours was 2002, you know, which remixes, you know, various stages, including that. A little a little. Bit of bit. the fifties yeah. there, but it's not. I wouldn't say it's a major. No, part of it was it. just all Julianne Moore was doing between the years of yeah. nineteen ninety five and two thousand. But do you do you two have <laughs> any political theories as to why the nineties was so um, favored remixing the nineteen fifties? So. Uh, I. I, ca- I was trying to get there. I'm asking you because I don't right. have a salient theory, but there's something about the Clinton years that were awfully retrograde in terms of sexual mores, for one. Yes, I think it, well, one thing could be that we were on the verge of the first huge steps in gay liberation in the 90s, but it hadn't happened yeah. yet. And so Clinton was like, the master of don't right. ask, don't mm. tell. And that might as well be Highsmith's uh, motto. Yeah. There you go. There's the connection. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of made up. I'm concocting this, but it could be something like that. There were still a lot of people in the closet in the 90s. And it just um, had not been something that was 
taught in schools and you didn't have, um, you know, queer teachers or anything. In fact, queer had not really evolved as like a nicey nice category to have yeah like a reclaimed word yeah again i think the talented mr ripley the movie is is both part of that moment but actually a little anachronistic ahead of it, a lot of its of its time too yeah. a lot of a little bit ahead of its time yeah in the sense that right especially with the figure of peter Right there is this there's this wonderful conversation that the two have about about the room in the basement about the the things yes. that we hide from yes. other people. Yes. Peter sort of replies caustically that in my case it's probably a whole building, <laughs> and of course yeah. he's thinking about he's thinking about homosexuality, yeah, right? Yeah. And there's this really interesting thing where like part of the I don't want to say it's a joke in the movie, but it is this running thing that. Tom can kind of confess to being a psycho killer and people assume he's just coming out of the closet. Yeah. There is something like, <laughs> yeah. that's to me a, kind of a, a really sly game on a yes. world in which certain things have to be secret uh, and yeah. in which certain things are crimes. Yeah. And here's a guy who's like, I've committed many crimes. And people are like, oh, it must be yes. about homosexuality. Yes. Like, oh, no, no, it's about the ore. Uh, and, yeah. the, and the bust <laughs> yeah. and the scarf and, and really right. and yes. almost yes. a razor blade you know it's um yeah you know. yeah yes exactly and all the kind of rummaging through dicky greenleaf's oh, yeah. closet to try on his clothes <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't know that we're quite far enough from it to see this but something i'm always interested in in sort of costume dramas which yeah. this is or historical dramas <laughs> which this now is is a- anachronistic details that come mm-hmm. into it um mm-hmm. uh i objected in my own mind on this front to the women's hairstyles, Ah. which I thought were completely anachronistic, especially Gwyneth Paltrow. Anyway, the sex scene between Jude and, or Dickie and Marge in the boat where Tom Mm -hmm. is watching and then Freddie is Mm -hmm. watching Tom and... How's the peeping, Yes, right, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In the book, it's presented as not being clear to the characters within the book whether Dickie and Marge are sleeping together. Mm. And Mm -hmm. Dickie, in fact, says at one point, well, of course I'm not sleeping with her, we're just friends. And you sort of don't necessarily believe it, but Tom seems to accept that, but who knows? But there's not going to be any doubt in the 1990s version that mm-hmm. Marge and Dickie are are doing it. Well, because that's why the straight audience goes to see the movie, is to see Gwyneth Paltrow I guess so. and Jude Law do it. That's a good point yeah. about <laughs> the anachronistic hairstyles. I had a moment of wondering if Gwyneth... And the makeup. Yeah, the makeup, makeup for sure. I had a moment of wondering if Gwyneth Paltrow's two-piece bathing suit might be anachronistic. Do you have an opinion on that? Uh, um it yeah it might be it seemed a little scandalous for the late 50s the bikini was a phenomenon of the early 60s mm-hmm. mainly mm-hmm. like a girl from ipanema and that kind of world copacabana mm-hmm. but um yeah there were a few things like that that mm-hmm. troubled me but you know it's more like a fun thing to think about i love the stuff like 
when you read about these things on film websites, you discover all the bloopers and the this and that. And I guess these weren't yeah. bloopers, but I read that Matt Damon learned to play the piano to play this part. And he also lost 30 pounds in order to play it. And I thought that, yes, he was very white and pasty looking, but he was also like buff, like he'd been working mm. out in a gym. And that's totally anachronistic yes. <laughs> for yes. the 50s. And right. I thought, oh, this is like 1999 we're looking at here. So things like that, you can see the period in which the film is made. And it relates to the body, usually, the way the bodies move. The clothing, all the men's trousers are too narrow for the period, and their collars mm -hmm. are too small, it seemed to me. But I miss my calling. I would have loved to have been a production designer. Ooh. Oh, I mean, I, I noticed yeah. these things. So Clearly. And I think especially on a movie like this, you get rewarded for that kind of that kind of attention. Very much. And, and it's true that I hadn't thought about the fact that, that his buffness still kind of shines through and actually kind of actually doesn't ruin that scene, mm. but it, it does make it less effective, right? Mm. I mean, the fact that... It jumped out at me, too. That the chiseled looks of Jude Law are supposed to be about a body that's been kind mm. of obscenely out there in a way that in that era it wouldn't, wasn't supposed to be, which, of course, is would have been perfectly Highsmithian, right? Uh, I remember it's that hers is the first biography of an author I've read that had nudes of the author in, in yes, it. Yes, like, yes. I was like, that's how you that's how you know you've lived a successful life. If you're a biographer, yeah. it's like, I don't know which nudes Preach. I should include, but definitely yeah. these, yeah. Yes, yeah, the Rolf Tietjen uh, photographs, her gay lover's photographs of her. Yeah. Simone de Beauvoir had some pretty good nudes, too. There's that really oh, iconic she? shot of her ass in the mirror. Oh. Anyway, feminist nudes. That's what people yeah. come to this podcast for. Yeah. <laughs> our, our next episode, yeah. Well, you have to visualize them, though. Yes, yes. 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 <laughs> Leave something to the imagination. Yeah. Well, I feel like we have to let Terry go to her other obligations, but I... You know, I'm going to express a wish to bring her back to talk about Gwyneth Paltrow and Sylvia. <laughs> That's oh, a joke. I never want to see Sylvia again, but I would really <laughs> love to hear Terry tear it apart. I'll talk about her in in Contagion. Oh yeah, which is more relevant now. That it was like the first time I thought she's a great mm. actress, and I thought it in her death mm. scene, which is on the kitchen floor, and she's flailing around and frothing at the mouth. And I thought the girl's got balls to do this scene because mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. pretty. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Terry. What a thank you so much. Yeah, Terry, what a guest. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. Thank you both very much. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante-Darty, and Morgan Kanan. 
The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. 